When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. Artist studios, exhibition space, and more. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. If you love Art Curious, help us keep it going and get your name read out on our show. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash artcurious for as little as $4 a month. Today's episode does contain some references to sexual violence and abuse, so please take care when listening. All right, close your eyes. Let's imagine this scene. A beautiful young woman, still in her late teens, stands on a street corner in New York City. Something catches her eye as she waits to cross the busy intersection. And it could be anything. A passing bird, a glare off a car's windshield, the bright coat of a commuter passing nearby. As she steps into the sidewalk, she's probably thus a little distracted and not aware of her impending doom. A car barrels down the road, screeching to a halt, and it barely misses our heroine, thanks to a quick save by a behatted man who pulls her out of the way at the last minute. The man is momentarily struck dumb, not only by the near disaster that he has helped the woman avoid, but also, gosh, she's just so beautiful. Now, believe it or not, this isn't a scene from a rom-com or the setup for a great romance novel, though it reads like both. And it's not fiction, either. This is a true story. The story of one of America's most interesting photographers and photojournalists. A woman who contained multitudes and, for a brief moment, was part of a creative, torturous partnership with a fellow American artist in the heady days of the late 1920s and early 1930s. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. Art Curious Season 13 is all about modern love. And today, we are homing in on the early years of Lee Miller, photographer and model, and her time spent with the surrealist Man Ray. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Lee Miller did indeed have a brush with death in New York at the age of 19, but it wasn't Man Ray or any other romantic suitor who saved her life that day in 1926. But it still was someone who would legitimately change her life. Lee Miller's beheaded hero was none other than the businessman and magazine magnate Condé Nast. Nast was the owner of high-fashion magazines like Vogue and Vanity Fair, and the founder of the media company that bears his name even today. 
And when he saw Elizabeth Miller, called Lee by her friends, he was indeed struck by her classic beauty. And he knew that she would make an excellent model. Lee Miller was born in 1907 in Poughkeepsie, New York, and her early years were not the easiest. She was in and out of school, frequently expelled from institutions, especially once she grew older. And she was once described as, quote, an idle student and an active rebel, unquote. At first blush, this description is the kind that usually makes me smile because an active rebel girl, yes, please. But her emotional disruptions and behavioral issues might have stemmed from some major trauma. When she was just seven years old, she was raped by a family friend who then infected her with gonorrhea. This was the 19-teens, so this was the pre-penicillin era. Lee was forced to undergo various vaccinations on a weekly basis, and some say weekly douches. I would like to remind you that she was seven. Seven. The rape was horrific enough, but being forced to undergo these medical interventions wasn't great either. And on top of this, her father, who did seem to be a loving one, I think, it's kind of hard to tell, her father liked to noodle around with photography, and he often asked Lee, his only daughter, to model for him. And often he would ask her to do so in the nude. This was a practice that father and daughter would continue into her late teen years. So it makes sense to me in multiple ways that she would want to get out of town quickly and as soon as possible. So she left Poughkeepsie for a year in Paris, which she spent studying lighting and costume design before returning to New York, this time settling in the city and enrolling at age 19 at the famed Art Students League to study life drawing and painting. But her discovery at the hands of Condé Nast set her on a different path as she became a fashion model. But don't worry, she'd eventually find her way back to becoming an artist in her own right. Lee Miller was a great model, and she became highly sought after by photographers, both in art and high fashion, or in the case of folks like Edward Steichen, someone who bounced between both of those worlds. Because of her time as her father's artistic model, Miller was very comfortable in front of the camera, but she felt curious, too, about what it was like to operate the camera, to be behind the lens. And when Steichen introduced her to the work of the American artist Man Ray, she felt something shift for her. That, that right there, that's the stuff, what she wanted to do. Photography, artistically done, creating a story. Coincidentally, the burgeoning of her interest in photography just happened to coincide with the use of her picture in an ad for the feminine product company Kotex, which, again, this is the early part of the 20th century, led to difficulties finding further work in high fashion. So Lee Miller had her face on an ad for pads, and then she could not get hired. So she knew that she was ready to make a big change, and the best way to do it was to head back to Paris to attain her goals. Across the ocean, 
Man Ray had been doing rather well for himself in the Parisian art world, especially in photography in the 1920s. We've spoken on a previous episode of Art Curious about the man born Emmanuel Radnitsky, but we focused primarily on his works both before and after his time in Paris. So today we get to rectify that a little bit. In 1921, thrilled by the work of the European avant-garde, Man Ray, as he called himself, moved to Paris, reveling in the early days of the Surrealist movement and befriending left-bank bigwigs like James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, Jean Cocteau, André Breton, and Man Ray's future lover and additional muse, the irrepressible Kiki de Montparnasse. Ray's Paris years, the phase of his career from 1921 through about 1940, were a hugely exciting time of innovation and experimentation. Man Ray played with the formal techniques of photography, even pioneering a type of photograph that he called a rayograph, named after himself, of course, that didn't use a camera at all, but were made when everyday objects were simply laid across photosensitive paper. Ray's photographs could blur the boundaries between representational and the abstract, sometimes appearing rather dreamlike, which made them very on trend with the Surrealists at that point. He was a groundbreaker with massive connections in the arts communities across two continents, and this was something that Lee Miller noticed. So in 1929, when she decided it was time to move back to Paris, this time she knew that she was driven by two goals. One, to become a professional photographer, and two, to work as an apprentice to Man Ray himself. Not that these were easily attainable goals. The story goes that Lee Miller popped by one day to Ray's Paris studio, hoping to introduce herself, only to be informed by the building's concierge that the artist had recently departed for the glitzy town of Biarritz for the summer. That had been her big chance, her big moment to meet the Man Ray, and she had just missed it. But it was only a momentary disappointment, because if this story has taught us anything so far, it's that fate smiled on Lee Miller. Because when she opted to go straight to a nearby bar to drown her sorrows, who would end up appearing at the same establishment? Strangely enough, it was indeed Man Ray who had not yet gone to be a Ritz. Miller was thrilled and jumped up immediately from her seat, introducing herself. I am Lee Miller, she said. I am your new student. Man Ray was confused, but otherwise intrigued. No, you're wrong, he told her. I am not accepting students right now, and anyway, I'm leaving for Biarritz. But Miller had just felt like her future had nearly slipped away from her, and she wasn't going to let it happen again. So she said one thing, then I am going to go to Biarritz with you. And Ray, to his credit, said yes. It was a life-changing moment. And that summer, Lee Miller and Man Ray fell in love. And that is coming up next, right after this quick ad break. Remember that you can join us over on Patreon for a few bucks a month and get the show ad-free. Patreon.com slash ArtCurious. We 
hardly need to know the pigments that Van Gogh used by their precise historical names, where or when they were discovered, or the complex processes necessary to make them palette-ready in order to register the pulsing power of the starry night. But what if we did? This is the idea behind the new book, The Art of Color, The History of Art in 39 Pigments by Kelly Grovier. It tells an innovative history of art through the biographies of paints and pigments, helping us understand in a new way how the colors in a given artwork affect us. Grovier takes readers on an exciting search for the intriguing and the unusual, ultimately enriching our experience of art. The Art of Color, The History of Art in 39 Pigments is published by Yale University Press and is available wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Art Curious. In the three years that Lee Miller and Man Ray were together, from 1929 to 1932, not only did the artists fall deeply in love, but they also began a partnership that sparked collaboration and learning opportunities. Miller not only became Ray's model, lover, and muse, but also his most committed student. And, as it turned out, Miller was a fast learner, taking to photography as naturally as possible, finding its minutiae to be fascinating challenges rather than frustrating roadblocks. She quickly became as proficient as Ray in the darkroom, and together they forged some noteworthy artistic achievements. One of their best-known activities was the development of their so-called solarization technique, wherein a photograph is rendered partially as a negative and as a positive, so that sometimes light areas appear dark and vice versa, typically because of the handling of light during the negative's development. Though this photographic effect had been known since photography's early years in the 19th century, it was often thought of as a fluke, like an accident. And indeed, Man Ray himself had first become entranced by solarization when he saw a work by the photographer Alfred Stieglitz that Stieglitz had discarded as a failed or ruined image. At the time, though, it had not occurred to Ray that this technique could be harnessed deliberately. That wasn't something that would happen until the intervention of Lee Miller and a very happy darkroom accident. While developing some of her negatives one day, Miller was startled by a creature suddenly crawling over her foot. Whether it be a spider or a rat or something else, I am not sure. And perhaps Miller didn't know either. But regardless, she was shocked into turning on the darkroom light without thinking about it, and thereby suddenly exposing the film that she had been in the process of developing, a dozen negatives of a nude standing against a black backdrop. Attempting to come to her rescue, Man Ray barged in, hoping to save Lee's works by immersing the film in a fixative. But things didn't go as planned. They were better than they had hoped. The unexposed parts of the negative, the black background, had been exposed to the sharp light and had developed and came right up to the edge of the nude white body. It looked cool, and both Lee Miller and Man Ray loved its appearance. Though Miller ultimately gave the credit for this accidental discovery of solarization to Man Ray, it is important to know that she was there through it all, and that without her own experimentation and photographic processes, the technique would not have gained such significant traction. Later in her life, Miller said, quote, 
Man had to set about how to control it and make it come out exactly the way he wanted to each time. There were many people later on who copied the solarization process, but they never seemed to handle it with the authority that Man did." Unquote. Now, to his credit, Man Ray dismissed this notion. He saw the discovery as no more than the studied application of a phenomenon, specifically the action of light on the compound silver bromide, which is something that had been known for at least 30 years. Still, this solarization technique would become the hallmark of their collaboration, this special little aesthetic mark that would forever be linked to this romantic couple. While collaborating behind the lens on works that featured solarization and other technologies, Miller and Ray also collaborated on opposite sides of the lens, too. Miller, well-practiced as a model, sat for Ray's photographs, like Lee Miller nude with sunray lamp from 1929. In Ray's hands, Miller comes across as sensual and alluring, a beauty who is equal parts beguiling and vulnerable. Seated in profile, in the shadows, her legs crossed and her gaze downcast, Miller appears pensive, like she's wishing to avoid the viewer or perhaps Man Ray's gaze. And this might be seen by some as understandable, given that Ray's focus is not on Miller's face, really, but on her body. The stark light from that titular sunray lamp barrels down, highlighting her breasts, stomach, and thighs. To Ray, Miller is the epitome of the object of desire here. But Miller wasn't just Man Ray's muse. She was her own, too. And even when the artists both riffed on the same general subject matter, it's fascinating to see how different Miller's takes are. In her own nude self-portraits, like a gorgeous one from 1930, which, by the way, you can see on my website, artcuriouspodcast.com, Miller portrayed herself as comfortable, confident, and formidable. Bathed in a bright light, her arms stretched up and behind her neck, Miller's head is turned and her gaze is directed firmly to her right. Though she is seen as partially nude, revealing her bare torso to the viewer, there is no shyness, nor embarrassment, and not even really a hint of provocation. More than anything, it's strength that radiates through this work. A woman presenting herself as capable, self-assured, and worthy of admiration as a person and an artist, not just as a beautiful woman. That strength that Lee Miller showed so evidently in her photographs was apparent, too, in her personality. As we can tell from her assured meeting with Man Ray in 1929, when she thrust herself upon him as a student, she was no wallflower. She was independent, courageous, unafraid to go after whatever it was that caught her fancy, whether it be a new career or a new relationship. So even though Miller loved Man Ray, she didn't allow her relationship with him to prevent her from engaging in sexual relationships with other men. This, honestly, was very much in line with surrealist thinking. The kind of philosophies that were in the air in the aesthetic and cultural communities surrounding the couple in Paris in the late 20s and early 30s. Surrealists demanded a kind of free love, this loose, uninhibited kind of connection that they called l'amour fou, or crazy love, where sex was spontaneous and welcomed, 
and not resented or prevented by anyone's committed partner. There was a catch, though. This was a philosophy that was deemed acceptable for men, but didn't necessarily extend equally to women. So Man Ray, for example, could pursue extracurricular sexual activities, but Lee Miller? Mm, Not necessarily. Quite understandably, Miller loathed these double standards and had no intention of following these rules, however loosely or strictly set by her own partner and their social circle. Instead, Lee Miller went to bed with whomever she chose, and Ray found himself unable to follow his own tenet of just letting go of jealousy and resentment. Soon, their lives began resembling little passive-aggressive vignettes, with Miller enjoying the attentions of other men, and Ray giving her the cold shoulder. Ultimately, Miller and Ray's relationship wasn't only plagued by jealousy in their romantic and sexual lives, but it seeped into their professional ones as well, especially as Miller came into her own as a talented photographer. One notable instance highlights their separate claims on their collaborative pieces and the violence lurking behind those collaborations. In 1930, Ray occupied himself by photographing Miller's head and neck for a series he called Anatomies. He captured Miller's neck from a low angle and in soft focus, with her vulnerable throat as the center of attention. Truly, this is a stunning work from a stunning series. But Man Ray just wasn't feeling it that day. He didn't love what he saw, and he threw away his negatives. Miller, though, she loved what she saw. So she fished the negatives out of the trash and proceeded to develop her own print from those negatives, taking her time during the development process to ensure the final product would meet her exacting standards. That finished work was beautiful. So Man Ray was impressed. But that satisfied feeling didn't last long because both artists claimed the piece as their own. Their fight over this work was a ferocious one a true barn burner that ended only when Ray ejected Miller from his studio. Upon Miller's eventual return to that space, she entered only to find that photograph, the one that she had developed, the cause of the fight, pinned there on the studio wall. The photo, right at the neck, had been slashed with a razor blade and red ink poured from the paper cut, giving the appearance of a deep, bloody wound. Yikes. The more independent Lee Miller became, the more Man Ray tried to pull her closer and closer. Not with love, but with threats. He appeared to love her spirit and was certainly drawn throughout his life to women with strong personalities. But he couldn't tolerate disloyalty, or really autonomy, in most of his partners. And Lee Miller was no exception. The threats escalated to emotional pleading as when Miller met her lover, Aziz Bey, who would eventually become her first husband, and Man Ray begged her to stay with him instead of meeting up with Aziz. The begging then further morphed into threats of violence. Man Ray owned a pistol, and rumor has it that he would traipse up and around Montparnasse, bragging that he just might use it on Miller if she pushed him too far. And for Miller, this was too far. Thus, in 1932, she left, returning to New York to open her own photography studio. 
Man Ray didn't learn that she had planned to leave Paris until he arrived at her apartment one night and found the windows dark, her home uninhabited. Lee Miller was gone. We'll continue our story right after another quick break. Come right back. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, you talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Welcome back to Our Curious. Lee Miller might have left Man Ray in 1932, but her specter haunted his work for much longer. Very quickly after Miller's departure from his life, Man Ray staged a series of photographs presenting himself in a mock suicide attempt. A grim, strange set of images portraying a seated, shirtless Ray sitting at a table with a noose roped lightly around his neck, holding a gun into which he has stubbed an ashy cigarette. A glass bottle and a few other odd bits of paraphernalia are said to hint at a potential poisoning to come. These works are dark, to be sure. But It is just one image that matches how devastated Ray felt at his lover's departure. That devastation morphed into anger, again with that hint of violence there in the background, when Ray opted to revisit one of his most famous pieces, a work originally created in 1923 and titled Object to be Destroyed. That piece is comprised of a metronome upon whose swinging arm Ray attached a black-and-white photograph of an eye. In this updated 1930s version, he made a couple of key changes that attest to his anger. First, he wrote instructions regarding the object's use, saying, quote, Cut out the eye from a photograph of one who has been loved but is seen no more. Attach the eye to the pendulum of a metronome and regulate the weight to suit the tempo desired. Keep doing to the limit of endurance. Then, with a hammer well aimed, try to destroy the whole. At a single blow. Unquote. And yes, he followed his own instructions, attaching an image of Lee Miller's eye in his new updated version. For her part, Lee Miller did go on to establish herself and her career back in New York City, hitting the height in and around World War II. She married and divorced Aziz Bey before opting to return to Paris in 1937, where she met Roland Penrose a British artist and historian also known within Surrealist circles. Eventually, the two fell in love and they married a decade later in 1947. Their son, Antony, was born that year. But let's back it up just a little bit to those early days of World War II, because that's where Lee Miller's career really gets interesting. 
1939, at the outbreak of the war, found Lee Miller in London. Though the U.S. Embassy there urged her to return to the United States, she wasn't interested, committed as she was to several projects in England at that time. This meant that as the war progressed, she was there, turning her lens not only on the fashion world, but at the center of an increasingly battered London during the Blitz and beyond. In these key years, Miller morphed from being viewed not only as a glossy, high-fashion magazine photographer, but as a photojournalist, a change that surprised some, potentially even including Miller herself. In 1942, on the advice of her friend, the Time Life photographer David E. Sherman, she applied for accreditation as a war correspondent for Vogue magazine, requesting access to sites that were connected with the U.S. Army. Upon approval, Miller gained access to military bases to photograph the many women actively assisting the Allied war efforts, whether as army nurses, searchlight battery teams, or as members of the Women's Royal Navy Service, a British service colloquially abbreviated as the Wrens. Miller, a female photographer capturing life during the war, made other women her primary focus at a time when women were seen as accessories or auxiliaries to fighting the World War not actively doing the fighting as well. And this changed Lee Miller. What might have affected her most, though, was when she moved away from Britain and began photographing mainland Europe, again alongside her friend, David Sherman. The more the war progressed through its horrifying final years, the more Lee Miller saw and the more she photographed for readers back home and for posterity. She witnessed the horrors of Nazi rule, including the liberation of the concentration camps Buchenwald and Dachau. She photographed skeletal prisoners and the dead in gas chambers. And she never, ever forgot these sights. According to her son, Antony, her time as a war correspondent haunted her. But no more so than those visits to Buchenwald and Dachau. As Antony Penrose later recalled, quote, for her, the horrors of the camp were deeply personal. She gazed into the eyes of dead prisoners searching for one of the many Jews she knew in Paris before they all disappeared during the war. Unquote. Lee Miller was there in the camps looking for her friends, and she brought along readers of Vogue in a heart-wrenching and unflinching search. But even then, Miller had to do some convincing. Writing a telegram to her editors at Vogue, she sent along her photographs of the concentration camps, begging in all caps, quote, I implore you to believe this is true. A clarion call for the publication to feature these horrific pictures of corpses as evidence of the existence of death camps, which some Americans hadn't believed, had chalked up to propaganda. Lee Miller was a truth teller. And with her war images, she explicitly fought against the ravages of fake news. One photograph of Miller's from the war ended up being one of her most interesting and most controversial. In April 1945, after a visit to Dachau photographing the awful sights there, Miller and Sherman connected with a group of American soldiers who had commandeered an apartment in the nearby city of Munich. 
filthy and scarred from her emotional trip to the concentration camp, she opted to hole up in a bathroom and she stripped down to enjoy the luxury of a hot bath. Alongside Sherman, she opted to set up a camera and document this moment, scrubbing her back with a washcloth and her eyes gazing upward and to the left with an almost insouciant glare. Her muddy boots have soiled the bath mat in front of her. Now, what's so great and potentially controversial about this picture of a woman taking a bath? It's all because of the context. This bathtub, this bathtub was Hitler's. There's a picture of the tyrant himself leaning against the edge of the tub in the background, by the way. According to Miller, it was there in that tub on that day, April 30th, 1945, that she learned of Hitler's death. That she said years later that she, quote, washed the dirt off Dachau in his tub, unquote, seems like the ultimate badass move. Hitler is dead. And here is this woman using his bathroom to clean off her body. It is Lee Miller announcing victory, reveling in the fall of the Third Reich, in a delightful provocation. After the end of the war, Lee Miller returned to her old life, so to speak, accepting commissions to photograph glamorous stars like Fred Astaire and Marlena Dietrich. But she couldn't shake the war, didn't want to forget the horrors she witnessed. It all took a toll on her. She experienced crippling PTSD, succumbing to long periods of depression and struggling with alcoholism. Both her husband, Roland, and her son, Antony, struggled too, in those times, trying to find ways to help her. But as Antony revealed years later, there was someone who could help. At least a little bit. And that person was Man Ray. When Lee Miller originally returned to Paris briefly in 1937, she ran into Man Ray at a party. Five years had passed since their tumultuous relationship had ended, and both artists felt free to move beyond their pain and to rekindle a friendship. This friendship became a close one. A platonic one, it looks like. And it was something that lasted for the entirety of their lives. When Lee Miller struggled with depressive episodes, Anthony Penrose said, Man Ray would send her little gifts and letters, all with the intention of bucking up his dear friend, this woman and collaborator that he learned he would always love. And it's those little notes, those little gentle objects showing he cares, that really helped Lee Miller through some incredibly dark times. Man Ray died in November 1976, and Lee Miller lived only a few months longer, passing away in July of 1977. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks to Anne Catherine Hughes for her amazing writing and great research for this episode. And hey, if you fell in love with Lee Miller like I did when I was putting this episode together, then you might be excited to hear that there is a Hollywood biopic in the works about her right now 
focused on her time as a war correspondent, and it features none other than Kate Winslet in the role of Miller. So I'm excited about that, and it gives us something fun to look forward to. The Art Curious theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our podcast is co-produced by Kabunki. Podcasts, creative video, and more. Subscribe to their show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at subgenrepodcast.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. The Art Curious podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. Anchor Light is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchor Light encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, and you can join us at Patreon for the price of a cup of coffee. Check back with us soon as we explore some of the most unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful modern art lovers in art history.